0: It's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canada, A Yearly Journey. I'm not going to do my usual spiel that I say at the beginning of most episodes. I'm going to be talking a bit about something a bit more personal. And it relates to my puppy, Boris. Over the past month, I've noticed that his breathing has become a bit different. It's raspy, he's a bit out of breath more, and he tends to hack up his food a bit more while eating. So I took him to the vet and I found that he has a uh, condition called laryngeal paralysis, which is the first stage of a neurological disease that's similar to ALS in humans. But thankfully, that's slow moving, and it's not really a concern until well down the road. But what is a concern now is the paralysis. And this is caused when abductor muscles in the larynx are not working properly, and they're not expanding and opening for a deep breath. And so it's not a horrible condition initially, but it does mean that Generally, he would have one to three years left. Um, or in some cases, in more extreme cases, dogs only have a few months. So I'm looking to raise some money for his surgery. Uh, it costs $5,000, which is not cheap and well beyond what I can afford. So I've organized a GoFundMe. You don't have to, to donate. If you can even just share it, I would appreciate it. I just would like to get a few extra years with my dog so if uh, you want to donate i will have the gofundme in my show notes i would also like to say thank you to bob and i hope i pronounced your last name correctly he slip you made a big donation to the podcast and i really appreciate it and all donations and all patreon support until september is going to get my dog his surgery so i really appreciate all of it and thank you so much Canada would go through a significant change in 1870 with the arrival of its newest province on May 12th, thanks to the Manitoba Act. The Act received royal assent on the day to establish a portion of Rupert's Land as Manitoba, and the road to Manitoba becoming a province began in 1869 with the Red River Resistance, or Rebellion as some people call it. Since the Métis were a main reason for the Manitoba Act, they had several requests for the federal government. Some of these things they requested included that the people of the new province have the right to elect their own legislature, that all members of authority are to be elected by the people of Manitoba, that land must be set aside for the building of schools, road, bridges, and other buildings, and the Dominion must pay for the territory's military and municipal expenses for four years. The military must be built up by the people who already live in the territory, all documents must be published in French and English, and the superior judge must be bilingual. The Act would set aside land for the Métis totaling 5,600 square kilometres and laws would be written in both English and French. The Act also gave religious language rights and allowed for four members from the province to represent the area in the House of Commons, along with two members for the Senate of Canada. From June to July, New Brunswick went through an election for its premier and ruling party. This was the first election for the province since the creation of Canada, and there was no party labels at this point. The government, which was based on a loose coalition of Conservatives and Liberals, was led by George Edwin King, who took over from Andrew Rainsford Wetmore after he had resigned. King would resign three days into the legislative session, and a new government was formed by George Luther Hathaway. An opposition MLA and King would become the Attorney General of the province. On July 3rd, there was a very important birth in Canadian history. R.B. Bennett was born in Hopewell, New Brunswick and raised in a strictly conservative family that had little in the way of money. The eldest of six children, the family would work on their farm and practiced a daily habit of thrift. Prior to his parents, the family had been rich, owning a shipyard nearby. But when the shift to steam-powered ships began, their business suffered and eventually closed. One of the largest and last ships launched by the company was the Sir Johnny Macdonald. Bennett would work in his youth and was seen as a loner by those around him. His mother would push him with ambition, which may have come because of her own frustrations with her husband and the family's difficult financial position. Thanks to a small legacy his mother received, he was able to attend the normal school in Fredericton, training to become a teacher. He then became a teacher at 16 and was a principal by the age of 18 he did this while working part-time for a law firm. After graduating from Dalhousie University in 1893, Bennett practiced law in Chatham, New Brunswick for four years. While there he would run for town council and was elected by one vote, although some sources say 19, but he chose not to stay in the community. He decided the time was right to move out to Calgary in 1897 and become the law partner of James Lougheed, who was the grandfather of future Alberta Premier Peter Lougheed. At the time when he got off the train in January 1897, Alberta was not a province and Calgary was a small frontier town, but there was opportunity to be had. Bennett was known for being committed to business and his work. He did not drink, he was devoted to attending church and he never married. While living in Calgary, he lived alone in a hotel and then a boarding house and he was a creature of habit as well, always taking his noon meal on work days at the Alberta hotel. And when it came to his social life, That was focused on his commitment to the church. Lougheed was also able to get along with Bennett, even though he was described as arrogant and reserved. He would say that Bennett was, quote, obnoxiously aware of his own genius, end quote. In 1898, Bennett would win an election as a conservative to the Assembly of the Northwest Territories, but he resigned his seat in 1900 for a failed run to the House of Commons. He would regain his seat in 1901 and won the 1902 election in his riding with 73% of the vote. By this point, the law firm in Calgary were booming and Bennett began to get involved in the buying and selling of land. Before long, he was able to buy oil leases including the Calgary Petroleum Products Company which had the first big strike of Alberta oil in Turner Valley. In 1905, he attempted to win a seat in the new Alberta legislature and at the time he was the first leader of the Alberta Conservative Party and he was up against Alexander Rutherford of the Liberals. Unfortunately for Bennett, not only did his party only actually gain two seats, the Liberals picked up 22, but he also lost his own seat to William Cushing. Bennett would find his way back into politics under Arthur Meehan, who appointed him as the Minister of Justice in 1921 to strengthen his government. Meehan disliked Bennett, but he respected the influence he had in the party. Bennett was sworn in as a justice minister on September 21, 1921. But when the 1921 election came along, the Liberal Party saw a resurgence under William Lyon Mackenzie King and Bennett did not win a seat in Calgary, losing by 0.1%. In 1922, Bennett decided it was time to end his time as partner with Waheed and he would split with the firm after a messy litigation. By 1924, Bennett was doing quite well. Around 25% of his income came from his legal practice, while director fees accounted for 7%. In 1925, Meehan was again Prime Minister, and he asked Bennett to serve as the Minister of Finance. This time, Bennett threw everything into his campaign in Calgary West, instead of just assuming he would win, and he was able to win his seat easily as the Conservatives overall won 116 seats to the Liberals' 99 Now, I won't get into what happened next, but essentially Meehan didn't form the government, King did, and then there was another election, and eventually Meehan was out. So, Bennett was able to keep his seat in that election. In the House, he would support old-age pensions, but he did not like sharing the cost with the provinces, feeling that Ottawa should pay for it completely. He actually also supported unemployment insurance and a proposal put forward by Labour politician Abraham Reit, but he wanted it funded both by the person concerned and the government. At the Conservative Convention in Winnipeg on October 10, 1927, Bennett would be elected as the new leader of the Conservative Party following the resignation of Arthur Meehan. In the 1930 election, the Conservatives gained 44 seats, putting Bennett in the role as Prime Minister of Canada, while the Liberals lost 27 seats in a stunning defeat.
1: By their heroic achievements upon the battlefields of France and Flanders, made for our dominion a place amongst the nations of the world. They are now engaged in a struggle for the agricultural and industrial development of their country, believing that if afforded an equal opportunity with their competitors, they can provide employment for Canadians in their own country, supply in large measure our domestic requirements, and command a fair share Of the trade of the world.
0: He promised aggressive action to deal with the Depression, but the action never came. And while Bennett had excellent business skills, that did not serve his political interests well. As with many other leaders who came to power during the Great Depression, he also underestimated the severity and longevity of it. He also operated on a policy of the free enterprise system, with the government interfering as little as possible and this was the wrong method to deal with the Great Depression. As Prime Minister, Bennett attempted to deal with the economy by persuading the British to adopt preferential tariffs, and while this brought relief, it was nowhere near enough. Bennett wanted a rapid modernization of Canada, and he promised that his measures would blast Canadian exports into world markets. His Unemployment Relief Act would put $20 million in place for public works across Canada as well, which would have a bit of an impact. But as the Great Depression raged on, Bennett's government would set up relief camps for single men, which cost him a great deal of popularity. By 1932, 25% of workers in Canada had no job, and Bennett was forced to give the provinces $20 million. At the relief camps, men lived in bunkhouses and were paid $0.20 a day to work a 44-hour week of hard labor. And these camps were run by the military, in their style, always in remote areas of the province. At the start of 1935, the constant stress of the Great Depression was taking its toll on Bennett. In February, he became sick with what he thought was a bad cold, but by March 7th, he was dealing with a severe heart problem. He was told he needed to rest for a month and should consider retiring. And while Bennett was gone, his New Deal legislation would pass. And the Prairie Farm Rehabilitation Act was also passed, which would teach 100,000 farmers how to handle and restore the Dust Bowl area of southern Saskatchewan. In October, the 1935 federal election was held and Mackenzie King roared back into power with a large majority and the Conservatives fell to the official opposition.
1: Good morning. Please see I'm not disturbed for the next few minutes. It is probable that by the time many of you will be listening to this movie tone talk, I will be on my way to my home in Canada. I uh, cannot leave the shores of these islands without expressing the very sincere appreciation and warm gratitude of my sister and myself, as well as of all the members of the Canadian delegation, for the boundless hospitality and kindness we have received since we arrived in Britain. Not only has the government been unremitting in its attention, but public bodies and private citizens have vied with one another in extending courtesies which will never be forgotten. While our proposals as the steps that should be taken to secure economic cooperation between component parts of our great commonwealth of free peoples have not been adopted by this kingdom, we confidently believe that at the adjourned conference to be held in Canada next year, the views now held by the overseas dominions as to the necessity for and value of mutually advantageous tariff preferences will be held by all. I assure you that Canadians, while working out their own destiny, believe that their contribution to the world's civilization can best be made as subjects of the British Crown, the symbol of our common allegiance. It now remains for me to bid you all goodbye and wish good fortune to all within sound of my voice.
0: Bennett continued to lead the official opposition, often attending the House every single day, and from all accounts he bore no grudges and accepted the Canadian people had suffered much under the Great Depression and wanted someone new in power. On June 26, 1947, while taking a bath, Bennett died of a heart attack in England. Bennett was always a fan of hot baths, but he was warned to be careful because of his heart. He would be found the following morning. At the end of his life, he would say, quote, I'll always remember the pit from which I was dug and the long uphill road I had to travel. I'll never forget one step. End quote. Now, after that long foray into Bennett's life, let's get back to the year. On July 15th, the British Privy's Council, Rupert's Land and Northwestern Territory Order, officially transferred the land to Canada that would form the Northwest Territories and Manitoba. On July 29th, George Dixon was born. Born in Africville, Halifax, he would gain the name of Little Chocolate due to his short stature and weighing only 87 pounds as a young boxer. Prior to boxing, he would apprentice as a photographer and he soon became interested in boxing because local boxers came to see his employer to get publicity photos taken. He would find success in boxing very early on. On March 10, 1888, he claimed the World Bantamweight Championship in a fight against Tommy Spider Kelly. On June 27, 1890, he knocked out Nunk Wallace of England in 18 rounds to officially become the new champion. One year later, on May 31, 1891, he defeated Cal McCarthy in 22 rounds to win the featherweight title. And with his fame quickly rising, he decided to create a vaudeville troupe which he named the George Dixon Specialty Company. He toured throughout the United States and Canada for the next several years. A reporter at the time stated that Dixon was the best self-trained man that ever stepped into the ring. He stated that he used a small pair of dumbbells and with either hand he faces an imaginary opponent. He faints and ducks before a spook enemy. He advances on one and then the other foot. Today this is called shadow boxing and it's believed that not only did Dixon create the practice but he was also the first boxer to use a modern punching bag. He would keep the championship for the next two years until he lost on October 28, 1901 to Abe Tell. This was followed by wins against Diggy Stanley and Peddler Palmer in 1903, but then he would lose his last three fights between 1904 and 1905. It's estimated that over his career he made over $250,000, but he enjoyed gambling, expensive clothes, and entertaining lavishly. Over the next three years, Dixon would slowly lose his money and end up homeless and an alcoholic. He'd been living and begging on the streets of New York, and many of his fans attempted to get him back on his feet to no luck, and the media began to report that the end was near for the former champion. On January 6, 1908, he would pass away in the alcohol ward of Bellevue Hospital. On January 23, a charity boxing match was held to pay the cost of his hospital bills. Over the course of his career, he would have a record, at least in professional fights, of 63 wins, 29 losses, and 48 draws. Overall, he would hold the Bantamweight title in 1890 and the Featherweight Championship from 1891 to 1897 and 1898 to 1900. His 23 World Championship bouts, which some say actually numbered 33, would be the most of any fighter until Joe Lewis. On September 16th, Alfred Boyd would become the first Premier of Manitoba. There was no election and he was not recognized by the title at the time, nor was he the leader of the government for the province. He was more of a provincial secretary of Manitoba or a chief minister. He had lived in the area since 1858 and was wealthy by the time of the Red River resistance. Following the upcoming, following the upcoming provincial election, he became become the Minister of Public Works. In October, Big Bear would lead his warriors in the largest indigenous battle to be fought on the Canadian prairies, that is known at least, when he took part in the Battle of Belly River near Lethbridge, Alberta. The battle would be the last major conflict between the Cree and the Blackfoot and the last major battle between the First Nations on Canadian soil. After a smallpox outbreak had decimated the strength of the Blackfoot, a Cree war party took advantage of this weakness to launch the attack in October of 1870. Each side had roughly 500 to 800 warriors with Piepot, Big Bear, Little Pine and Little Mountain leading the Cree. Big Leg, Black Eagle, Heavy Shield, Crow Eagle, Bullback Fat, and Button Chief led the Blackfoot. After several hours of battle, a Blackfoot party was able to take the high ground, and this put the Cree in a terrible situation. They attempted to retreat, but were taken down by the Blackfoot, who killed about 300 Cree who tried to escape. In all, nearly 400 Cree were killed, while 40 Blackfoot were killed and 50 were injured. Capshirt was a seasoned blood warrior, described by some as a chief. And he was told about the battle happening at the moment as he had just returned from a hunt. Before he left, he promised his father that if he should fall to a Cree arrow, he would not take it out. According to the stories, Calf Shirt grasped his knife and ran into the Cree when an arrow hit him in the wrist, but he did not stop. He remembered his promise to his father and he did not remove the arrow, instead, picking up a bow and killing an archer with his knife. He then began shooting into the Cree, taking several down. One account says he had arrows in his neck and arms, but he was still able to kill two Cree warriors with his knife. Jerry Potts would say later, quote, You could fire eyes shut and kill a Cree that day, end quote. George Kennedy would say, quote, A head, a hand, anything was enough to shoot at, end quote. One indigenous man named Big Brave would say of the battle, quote, I could not hear for the roar of the guns and could not see for the smoke, end quote. Many of the Cree took off running along the open prairie, but were taken down by the Blackfoot who were pursuing them. The Cree that did try to make a last stand on the open prairie would lose 50 men. By nightfall, the Cree had made it into a strand of trees, but they were surrounded by the Blackfoot. The Blackfoot decided that the battle was over at that point, and they returned back to their camps. They also allowed the Cree to retreat with their dead and wounded. The move by the Cree had failed in terrible fashion because of an underestimating of the Blackfoot numbers and how many had died from smallpox. And while the Scouts had seen 60 lodges at the camp, there were more than 200 lodges nearby not seen. Big Bear and the other Cree chiefs had lost half their force, and Big Bear had lost his son as well. Seeing no other way forward, the Cree would send tobacco to the Blackfoot in 1871, and with the help of Chief Crowfoot of the Blackfoot, a treaty would be negotiated between the Cree and the Blackfoot. The blackfoot then allowed the cree to settle nearby and hunt the bison from their territory today the area is known as indian battle park was actually there last year it's a really cool setting in 2005 the name was nearly changed to valley of peace to remove the negative references to the indigenous people but the proposal was rejected by the city council on october 16th wallace turnbull was born and he would go into aviation as an adult building the first wind tunnel in canada he would spend his life researching the stability of aircraft and looking at new forms of airfoils. He designed several propellers and he would have a lasting effect on aeronautical engineering. Following his death in 1954, he would be inducted into the Canadian Aviation Hall of Fame. Harlan Brewster was born in Harvey, New Brunswick on November 10th and he would move to British Columbia at the age of 23 where he had several careers. He would eventually be elected to the BC Legislature in 1907 and serve as the premier of the province from 1916 to 1918. During that time, he would bring in women's suffrage, institute prohibition, and combat corruption before a sudden death in 1918. On December 23rd, Theo Abraham Hamill would pass away at the age of 53. Spending his life as a painter, he would travel throughout Canada East and Canada West painting portraits of prominent individuals. He would also paint religious pictures and an imaginative portraits of Jacques Cartier, Samuel de Champlain, Jean Talon, and General James Murray. His image of Cartier would eventually appear on a banknote. And over his life, he painted 2,000 portraits. His painting of Sir Alan MacNab, painted in 1853, currently hangs in the House of Commons. The first official election for Manitoba would be held on December 27th. Like with New Brunswick, there was really not any provincial party, so former Lieutenant Governor Adams, George Archibald, would govern a coalition that received 17 seats, while John Christian Schultz would lead the Canadian party with five seats. The Canadian party demanded swift retribution for the leaders of the resistance, but it failed to gain much support. Edward Hay would become the leader of the opposition. This was also the year of the story of the Lost Lemon Mine, the story begins with Frank Lemon and his friend Black Jack, who apparently discovered the gold deposit in 1870 somewhere between the Crows Nest Pass and the Highwood River. According to the story, Lemon and Black Jack got into an argument after finding the gold over whether to come back in the spring or camp where they were. After the argument, it was said that both men then went to bed, but Lemon would crawl out of his blanket, and he hit his friend in the head with an axe while he slept. After realizing what he did, he built a huge fire and left the area with his gun. Some say he was slowly starting to go mad at this point. Two Blackfoot apparently saw the murder and the gold strike, and after speaking to their chief, they were sworn to secrecy and a curse was put on the area where the murder happened. After Lemon returned back to town and confessed to what he had done to a priest, the priest kept his secret safe, but then sent a trapper named John McDougall to bury the body of Blackjack. McDougal would later be hired to lead a group of miners to the spot where the mine was, but as he journeyed with them, he stopped in Fort Kitt, Montana, and drank himself to death. Lafayette French, who had funded Lemon and Blackjack initially, went looking for the mine several times over the next 30 years. After apparently finding the mine, he wrote to his friend to tell of his success. Unfortunately, the cabin he was staying in soon burned to the ground, killing him. As for Lemon himself, as soon as he began to approach anywhere near the area where the mine was reported to be, he would be overcome with anxiety and would journey no further. And as the years went by, his mental health continued to decline as he slowly lost his mind. The priest that Lemon had confessed to would organize an expedition in 1883 to find the mine, given what Lemon had told him. But before he could venture out, a forest fire blazed through the area, rendering the route impassable. To date, the lost Lemon mine has never been found. I hope you enjoyed that episode and my look at 1870 in Canada. Now the next episode will be on 1871, but it won't be coming next week because I'm going to be in Toronto next week, so I won't be able to record. But it will be coming the week after. So, two weeks and we'll have 1871. If you like, you can email me at craig at com. You can find me on Twitter, my handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. As well, again, if you want to support the podcast, you can for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX, and you can donate to the podcast by going to -eh CanadaEHX.com and clicking Donate. And I also want to thank all of my wonderful patrons. And I apologize if I get any names incorrect. Sarah White. Tom McMillan. Mike Sullivan, Wendy Mills, Keelan Prignitz, Michael Matthews, Joanna Parker, Jeff Dahl, Bobbs, Robert Page, Richard T., Colin Johnson, Jeff Hershey, Kyle Murray, Steve Pakin, Matthew Gartho, Lionel Romain, Dr. Bob Turner, Randy Hayden, Doug Campbell, Reg W., Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Nixon Ree, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseeth, Todd Casey, Catherine Wah, Luke S, JP Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. Thanks, and we'll see you again next time.